the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. study in the Gospel of John, and it's a neat little passage that's really transitional, because as we go from the end of chapter 11 into the start of chapter 12, we transition into the final week of Jesus' life. For the first 11 chapters, we cover three years of ministry, not chronologically, not uh, in its entirety, just the things the Holy Spirit inspired John to pull out to focus on. We've studied those in depth. We're now going to look at the second half of the book, which very, very detailed covers the last week of his life. So it starts our lesson this morning, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Last week, we studied the uh, resuscitation of Lazarus. If you weren't here, you may want to go back and listen to that online. Uh, I've been told it's an okay lesson, so uh, it'll get you up to speed. But I I want to mention one thing this morning that I did not mention last week, and that is that I have a guess— And it's purely a guess. This is not based on Bible. But I've got a good guess that for the first and only time in his adult ministry, maybe the first and only time in his adult life, Jesus apologized. I believe he apologized to Lazarus when he said, Buddy, I'm sorry. I got to bring you back into this disastrous, painful, ugly, sick life that we live. And I believe it's the only apology Jesus ever gave in his adult life, maybe his entire life. We'll figure out when we get to heaven once again. That's just a guess from Chris, but it's a transitionary point because of all of the things Jesus ever did. If he ever owed an apology to anybody, I wouldn't think he owed it to anybody, But if he ever gave one, I suspect he gave it to Lazarus, which is, there's a purpose. I'm bringing you back. I know you'd rather be somewhere else. I'm sorry for the inconvenience, but this is for a greater good. So I think there may have been an apology there. I told you last week at the end of verses 45 and 46 in chapter 11, it transitions with a dichotomy. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I told you last week how... It's mind-boggling. They witness the greatest miracle Jesus has ever done. At this point in history, it's the greatest miracle in all of mankind. You could argue the Red Sea crossing was a bigger miracle. I think bringing somebody back from the dead is a little bit bigger than that. But nevertheless, you wonder how can people watch this and not believe him? Somebody with an inquiring mind called me this week from our class and said that that point bothered them because it drove home a reminder of the election of God. The idea that God calls some into a saving faith in him and others he just lets them be. And that bothered them. And so I want to digress on this for just a minute and say, number one, we're going to tackle this question later in John, because there's a passage that just totally tees up the sovereignty of God, God's election, God's wisdom. I'm going to tackle that at the end of John. But a brief introductory point is we're always uncomfortable with election. The reason we're uncomfortable with election is our sin nature 
makes us uncomfortable with a theological concept that God chooses us, we don't choose him. And what I want to remind you from Scripture, and I'll teach you in a couple of weeks when we get to the end of John, is that our sinful fallen state makes us spiritually blind and incapable of seeing. It makes us spiritually deaf and incapable of hearing. It makes us spiritually dead and incapable of spiritual life. So what happens is when God calls somebody, he gives them sight, just like Jesus' miracle. He gives them the ability to hear, just like Jesus' miracles. He gives them life, just like the resurrection of Lazarus. To the rest of them, he simply says, thy will be done. If you want to live that life, you can live that life. Great little comment from a, a, a theology professor in California that I like named Michael Horton. He's written a bunch of books. He has a great quote called, Essentially Election is God making the decision for us that we never would have made for him. In other words, scripture makes it clear that but for his moving in our hearts, we will never go to him. We are blind, we are deaf, we are dead. We will never go to him. So if you're bothered by election or you're bothered by this story of the resurrection or the resuscitation of Lazarus, and your view is, I'm offended he didn't call everybody who was there. You can't have that view because the fallen reality of our world is deaf, dead, uh, blind. You're incapable of seeing, hearing, or living truth. So hang on if that bothers you. If you can't wait till the end of John, take me to lunch and I'll give you the preview. You buy, I'll teach. Otherwise, hang on and I'll teach everybody once we get towards the end of John. Life lesson here, the rejection of Christ and his followers is never due to a lack of information, complexity, or confusion, but is due to a rebellious heart that will never turn to God but for his calling. I know people that refuse to use their spiritual gifts because somebody hurt their feelings. They won't witness because one time somebody hurt their feelings. They won't teach because sometime they heard somebody make an offhanded comment that hurt their feelings. They won't do prison ministry. They won't serve. They won't help because someone failed to validate them. Folks, we live in a world where they rejected Christ when they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Don't be surprised they might uh, hurt your feelings or say something less than warm uh, if you try to share with them or try to live a Christian life. Great life lesson. Now, into our text, verse 47. So the chief priest and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin. Let me put it together. Most of you from going to church know what I'm talking about. I just want to capture ideas here. Our Pharisees and our Sadducees are diametrically opposed religious leaders. Do not think of it as Republicans and Democrats who just don't like each other. Think of it as 150, 30 years ago, 130, 140, 150 years ago. Think about it as America when there was the conflict between slaveholding legislators and free state legislators that were constantly on the brink of literal war, dividing the country. American Civil War, the worst part of American history. That's what the Sadducees and the Pharisees are like. They hate each other. 
They don't worship together. They don't eat together. They don't socialize together. They don't govern together. They were diametrically opposed, thought each other were the worst thing that Judaism had, thought each other were going to hell. They hated each other. That's the point. Because of Jesus, they get together. It's unprecedented, and that's the point. They would get together in the Sanhedrin, which I want you to think of as like a combination of Congress and the Supreme Court. They had both rulemaking authority and judicial authority, although they couldn't overrule Rome, but they would get together in this room, sit on opposite sides, and just scowl at each other. You've seen the British House of Commons where they kind of yell at each other. That's tame compared to what these guys would do. These guys would get up and literally say, you who are going to hell, shut up, and then go on and make their little point, right? Make the Brits look really calm. So they get together. Notice what they say. What are we going to do since this man does many signs? If we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Now, that just sounds like an observation, but there's a whole lot there I want to unpack for you. Insight on these guys. Number one, what I just read to you is an admission that they had failed to manifest the power of God. If they had God in their midst, if they were doing miracles, if they had different things going on, then they would have been able to say, we're doing the works of God, he's doing the works of God, these things uh, have a lot in common, that's God. They're, they're blind, right? They are, they are furious at Jesus' miracles because they don't have any. Second point, they made no effort to deny, limit, or dispute his miracles. There's no investigative inquiry. There's no bringing in of witnesses to say exactly what happened. There's no debate about whether he's a magician or a sorcerer. They take the miracles for historically what happened, and that is exactly what Scripture says. He's got lepers that are clean. He's got blind men that can see. He's got lame men walking. He's got deaf men hearing, mute men talking, demons that have been cast out of people, and Lazarus walking around alive, and no one can debate the miracles. Third point, while admitting the miracles, they deny the miracle worker. Right? They don't even stop for a minute to say, how's this possible? Could this guy theoretically have a connection to God that we've somehow missed? They just skip past all that. Yep, there's miracles. Yes, we're going to recognize it. Nope, we're not going to believe in him. Last point. A hardened heart, as I said a few minutes ago, shuts both eyes and ears to the truth of Christ. That group was as incapable of seeing Jesus as anyone else who is not supernaturally called by the Father to a saving faith in him. He's got to open the eyes, open the ears, give them spiritual life. Then for the first time, they can hear him. These guys are as blind as those people around the tomb that saw Lazarus walk out and said, that was cool. Dinner, anybody? Right? Same mentality. They're incapable of seeing the truth. Last point, verse 48, he says, if we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Theologically, that's where you say, duh, <laughs> the end of verse 48, then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. Now, I love that translation because it's right where it says our place. If you got a New American Standard, an English Standard Version, a uh, King James, surprisingly, uh, most of the English Bibles or the Holman translated our place. The NIV and a few others translated our temple. I understand why if you assume it's our holy place, that translation works. 
But when he says our place in Greek, that means our place of position, our place of political standing, our place of religious standing. So when he says the Romans will come and remove our place, that's the room therein in a political religious sense, not the temple worship sense, and our nation. In other words, it was all about an expedient end to preserve their economic and political position. little insight here. People would rather unite with their vicious enemies than follow Jesus. I've seen it in my life. I see it in politics. I see it sociologically. I see it vocationally. I see people that cannot stand each other. But if the issue is opposition to something that Christians are doing or want to do or something that Christians are against, suddenly, all of a sudden, they become best friends. And if you wonder how can the hypocrites do that, it's because going back to Jesus' time, that's what sin does. It gives them a bond through their sin and hatred of all things that are God. Now, there's a great little life lesson here. Many will agree with anyone and work with anyone rather than agree and work with Jesus or his followers. So that means if you are interviewing for a job with someone who's a non-believer, they're not going to like you simply because you are a believer, if they know that. There are opportunities you have in social situations, in certain clubs or other things like that. And if people find out you're a Christian or they know you're a Christian, they won't want you because they want to agree with and associate with others that are like them that don't believe what you do. They think you're bigoted. They think you're intolerant. They think there's some aspect of you that's offensive. And most of us, when that happens, totally personalize it. It must have been something I said. Oh, I need to go apologize. It must be something I did. Oh, I got to go work harder. They must not really know me. All those are false. They know all they need to know about you. You're a Christian. They don't want you in their group. They don't want you in their lunch club, their supper club, their sewing club, their country club, their job club, whatever it may be, they don't want you. So before you personalize it and say, I'm unlovable, I'm unlikable, they don't want me, I'm not worthy of them, remember this, that those who aren't believers will never really like you and want you to be a part of them because your presence reminds them of that which they don't want to be reminded of. So don't personalize it. Love them the way they don't love you, because that's what Jesus did. He loved them the way they did not love him. It continues. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than for the whole nation perish. Now, I want to talk about Caiaphas for just a minute, but I I highlighted the word for because even though this guy is the most adamant non-believer enemy of Jesus, he's got a perspective that I believe God gave him that recognizes substitutionary atonement. I highlighted the word for. Dying for the people, not dying for himself or because something he's done, dying for somebody else. Fancy seminary word substitutionary atonement just means he's dying for somebody else. Well, let's back up. Who's this Caiaphas guy? He's a part of a family that ruled. His father-in-law ruled a long time. This guy is more vicious, more political, more manipulative than even his father-in-law. He rules a really long time. 
It was a lifetime position, but it required you to be friendly with Rome or else they could replace you before the end of your life, or they could just kill you and have you replaced. Regardless, he has this job for about 40 years. So he did it really, really well. And we know from history it was totally corrupt. His job is the preservation of his role as the high priest. Understand historically that job going back to Moses and Aaron, who held that position. Aaron, his brother, had that position. Was the idea that we are the placeholder for the coming Messiah. We'll temporarily hold this job. We're the intermediary between God and the people. We're the only one that can go in the Holy of Holies. We're the only one that can lead the sacrifices and the communication that goes on in the Holy of Holies. We're the intermediary between God and man. The idea was the Messiah comes, they step out of the way, Messiah becomes the chief priest. Our book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that's exactly who Jesus Christ is. But this guy is supposed to see himself as the intermediary to the Messiah coming. He is blind as can be and he does not see Jesus as the Messiah. He's ready to kill him on the spot. Great little insight. When the earthly high priest condemned the eternal high priest... The role of the, should be earthly, not early, the role of the earthly high priest was effectively ended for all time. There is a high priest after him, but it ends in 70 AD, and to this day there has never been another chief priest, high priest of Israel. When this guy had the eternal high priest put on the cross, he essentially ended his job for all eternity. Mind-blowing. Life lesson. It's in the name of expediency and self-interest that the most terrible things are done. As a lawyer, I live by the billable minute. Right? That's how I make my money. That's how I pay for my life. I'm a lawyer. I charge by the hour. I live by the minute. Everything we do is expedient. The greatest progress I've made as a Christian leader in the last decade is slowing down. I want to make fast decisions. I want to get quick meetings. I want to get to the finish line as fast as I can. I want to get cases over with quick. I want to get trials over with quick. And I had some brothers, some partners, that taught me expedience is rarely of God. Slow down, pray, get wisdom from godly men and women, and then move as God opens doors. If you, like me, live to get stuff done quick, to solve problems fast, to address things as quickly as you can, learn the biblical wisdom of slowing down. Give God time to lead because when we go fast, it's our foot on the accelerator, our hand on the wheel, steering wherever we think it's best to steer. You can't lead, let God lead when we live a life of expediency. So the high priest here is moving fast. Let's get him killed as quickly as we can. And it's pure self-interest. And our lesson is the opposite. We can't be expedient and hear the, the quiet voice of God, and we can't certainly be focused on our self-interest. A little insight here. Don't miss the irony regarding the death of one and the death of the nation. Caiaphas' point is, if we kill him, we save the nation. It's expedient to kill this one guy that otherwise Rome is going to think he's leading an insurrection and shut us all down. 
So it's expedient to kill the one, save the nation. The irony is they killed the one, he was resurrected, the nation refused to believe in him, and the nation was destroyed. Now, to me, that is one of the greatest examples of God working in history that has ever existed. And I want to pause for a second with a whole bunch of disclosure. What I'm going to say in the next 60 seconds, I don't pull from Bible. I pull from a lifetime of studying Bible. When we get to heaven, we'll figure it out. But it shows you my desire to look at history and say, where do I see God moving? Is there an illustration here that's more than just a historical fact? Is there a point here that's more than just a historical, you know, A happened and then B happened and C happened? I think when you see history through God's eyes and you look at what I just taught you, you see one real clear thing. God supernaturally designated Jerusalem as a blessed place. He supernaturally designated the Jews as a blessed people, his calling chosen people. And to this day, they still are. Do not misunderstand me. That involved a supernatural protection. That involved the Holy Spirit moving to keep Satan and his forces at bay. Christ comes. Caiaphas' plan is achieved when Pontius Pilate says, crucify him. He's crucified. He's resurrected. And there is not only not belief, there is persecution of the Christians. After Pentecost, where is the Holy Spirit? In the life of the believers. He's no longer in the temple. He hadn't been in the temple in 400 years by the time Christ comes. The Holy Spirit's been out of the temple for centuries. The Holy Spirit that was protecting Jerusalem then takes his part in the lives of the Christians. Between 33 AD and 70 AD, guess what happened? Every Christian left. The disciples left. Mary left. Jesus' family that became believers left. Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, everybody from Pentecost, they all left. When the Holy Spirit was gone, Jerusalem fell. When we get to heaven, I believe we will discover Jerusalem fell days or hours after the last Christian left. Greg's been teaching Revelation. You've seen him work it out in Revelation. What happens when anarchy and the Antichrist and the tribulation gets really bad? We're all gone. That's when it happens. I think you look at history, you can see some of the parallels. So, I base that just on my study of Bible and history for my life. We'll figure it out when we get to heaven exactly how the timeline works. But I wanted to pause there because that issue of seeing history uh, through the, the fall that Caiaphas started is so clear to me. Verse 51, he, Caiaphas, did not say this on his own, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. Now, that seems like a really weird verse. Why would, Caiaphas, why would these words come out of Caiaphas' mouth? I believe he thought he understood what he was saying and somehow rationalized it made sense for everybody and it was the right thing for the leader to say. I believe God gave him words to say so that those who heard him would write it down and note it and after the resurrection would go, wait a minute, God's fingerprints were all over this. This was not a, just a political murder. This was God's plan. 
it makes you pause for a minute and say, wait a minute. God can talk through pagan hostile enemies. God works through his enemies to speak to me, his believer, rather than through my pastor, rather than through my Bible study teacher, rather than through the books I read, rather than through my copy of scripture. And the answer is yes. Remember Bible. There are a dozen or more examples. In fact, I could probably make a case for about two dozen examples of the sinful, God-hating pagan that speak the word God wants to give. I'll give you the two biggest illustrations. Number one, (laughs) Balaam. God can speak through anybody. Point number two, Pontius Pilate said, this man is innocent, said, this man is the king of the Jews, and then put it in three different languages and hung it on the top of the cross. Those, scripture says, are the words of God. They correctly identified who Jesus was. I got two dozen other illustrations. The point is, we as Christians, particularly today in 2021, want to live in an informational, social, political bubble that says, do not confuse me with any other truth other than the truth that I choose to believe. And folks, it is going to threaten to destroy Christianity. Life lesson. When we shut our ears to any person or any organizations, we lose both our ability to understand them and God's ability to speak to us through them. If you're a person that won't associate with an unchristian Democrat because they're an unchristian Democrat, you are failing your job as a Christian. If you refuse to listen to a media outlet because people have told you they're mainstream media, they lie all the time, you are being a fool. Assume it's true. You're being so arrogant as to say God can't speak to me through the lost. You're being so foolish to say God can't speak to me through a pagan Democrat who I politically disagree with. You're being so foolish to say I can't hear God speaking from the broken heart of a non-believer. The illustration Christ gave us is apolitical, asocial, to love everybody, to call everyone, to hear everyone, to hear everyone's pain. And it doesn't mean he identified with them socially, politically, morally, or anybody else, but he had barriers come down so he could hear and respond as the Father wanted, and we are to do the exact same thing. Verse 54, 53 and 54. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him, Jesus. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. All right, now, you read that, you read through your Bible, and you're like, eh, okay, little geography point. Check the box, go on to the next verse. There's something jaw-dropping awesome there that all of us miss if you just fly through it. Ephraim in the Old Testament was called Ephron. Fast forward 1,000 years, the name got tweaked to Ephraim. Fast forward 2,000 years, it's got an Arabic name that I can barely pronounce, and you don't need to go there because, one, it's Palestinian, and number two, there's nothing there historical to see. It sits on top of that hill. 
It's about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. We know from this passage we're entering the week of Passover. We're entering the final week of Jesus' life, which coincides with Passover. I'm going to teach a whole lesson on Passover its significance. But at this point in time, what's coming on Passover is two million Jews from all over the Roman world are coming to a city of 100,000 people. And every single individual and every couple and family are going to individually have a sacrifice offered. A sheep will be sacrificed to comply with the Passover offering. If I got two million people, that means I've got almost a million sheep that are going to be sacrificed in a week. They were kept right here. Jesus went to the place that for most of the year was quiet and just had a few sheep. But because it's far enough away so that the stench doesn't leave that smell of sheep manure over Jerusalem, and far enough away you could still get them to Jerusalem in less than a day, they kept almost a million sheep for the Passover sacrifice on the hills I just showed you. So as Jesus goes to Ephraim, and he picked it on purpose, of all the places in Israel, he picks Ephraim. He is surrounded by the sheep of the sacrifice of Passover. And I just want to put the audio visual together for you. If you've ever been around sheep that are bleeding, making noise, it is loud. I've been around a hundred sheep. And I could have closed my eyes and thought there were a thousand. I've been around 500 sheep and I thought it was 10,000. I mean, you can hear them for miles. They are so loud. A million sheep waiting for the Passover sacrifice would have been so loud you could barely talk to your neighbor. That's the audio visual of what Jesus was going through. A second by second reminder that he was the Passover lamb and what was coming. Folks, if you and I were in the same situation, it would have petrified us to the point of non-movement. We would have crawled under the nearest bed, pulled the covers over my head, and said, don't tell them where I am. Jesus carries on as if nothing is out of the ordinary. It is a picture of courage and not fear that transcends our wildest imagination. I painted the picture for you so that you could have an ounce of a glimpse of the terror that would be in the human heart surrounded by the reminder of a million bleeding sheep of what's coming in seven days. Your gruesomely torturous whipping and crucifixion. And he goes through it with courage. I don't say it just to give us the ability to say, wow, Jesus. I give it so that we can all have the ability to say, thank you, Jesus, because you can give that to me. We face our little problems, whether they're economic, vocational, social, relational, and we don't know how we're going to get through it. I can't get through this crisis. I think of this place, Ephraim, when I need a little bit of encouragement, God can give me courage despite me being terrified about this problem, this case, this kid, this relationship, whatever I'm struggling with. 
if Jesus went through and persevered that kind of courage without fear, I can pray, Jesus, give me a little bit of that as your child because I so desperately need it. It's encouragement for us. Verse 55, the Jewish Passover was near. It's six days away now. I mean, many went up to Jerusalem in the countryside to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple complex, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so they could arrest him. What is fascinating to me is two million people come to it to Jerusalem, many of whom knew Jesus. Everybody from Galilee is coming down. They know about the water to wine. They know about the lepers. They know about the blind. They know about the deaf. They know about the mute. They know about the walking on the water. They know about everything. They feed of the 25,000. They know all the miracles. Nobody is standing up saying our Messiah is here. Not a single person stands up and says, it's Passover. The Passover feast is coming with the Messiah. Not a single person in Jerusalem speaks up. The people are completely silent. Now, let me teach you a little bit of true history. I'm going to show you something that's 1,500 years old. I cannot tell you that when written in 500 AD, this accurately captures the history of Jesus' time, but I think it is more likely than not accurate, and I'll tell you why. This is called the Talmud Sanhedrin. It's also known as the Babylonian Talmud of the Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin. In Iraq, 500 years after Jesus, the Jewish leaders decided to do something different. Going back to the time before Jesus, the Jewish tradition was oral. If you wanted to graduate from the equivalent of Jewish college, you had to memorize word for word verbatim what your teacher told you about the Talmud, about Jewish tradition and Jewish history. Think of it as a commentary on the Old Testament, where somebody would say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then there's two or three sentences of commentary. They would memorize that from about 200 years before Jesus up until 500 years after Jesus. And it was an oral tradition that was passed down verbatim because you didn't graduate until you repeated it. And if someone caught you repeating something different or adding to it without official sanction and blessing, they would kick you out and you could never teach again anywhere. So it was an oral history that was very, very accurate. The Babylonian Jews, 500 years after Christ, for the first time said, let's write it all down. So they wrote it all down. That's a modern typed version of what they wrote down. If we had time and you cared, I'd do my best to read the Hebrew from the right to the left. This is what it says. It talks about this week. On the eve of Passover, Jesus the Nazarene was hanged. Now, don't think rope around your neck. Think hanged on a cross, because that's what it meant back then, to hung, be hung on a cross. And a herald went forth before him 40 days herald, heralding. Jesus the Nazarene is going forth to be stoned because he practiced sorcery and instigated and seduced Israel to idolatry. Whoever knows anything in defense may come and state it. But they did not find anything in his defense they hanged him on the eve of Passover. I can't stand here and tell you historically that happened for 40 days. 
I've studied the Talmud for decades. I think there's a hint of truth there. Did they tell all inhabitants that? Did they tell all two million people that? Was it exactly 40 days? I don't know. But the truth of history that I think got orally transmitted from Jesus up until the time they wrote it down was they went out into the public and said, we're going to kill this man. If anyone wants to stand up for his defense, stand up and not a single person stood up. When I look at scripture, that's what I see. I don't see a single person stand up for him. And when people started saying, are you a follower of Jesus? They did what Peter did and said, nope, never heard of him. They did what the disciples did and they went and hid. So the disciples' conduct recorded in Scripture matches this to perfection, which is why I think this is probably historically accurate in general. Question for us, why do we stay quiet? Why couldn't somebody in Jerusalem stand up and say, I don't know who he is, but I just saw him raise Lazarus. Let's talk about that. Everybody stays silent because, like us, they are scared to death. I do these things back to back because Jesus is in Ephraim with a bleeding million sheep and he doesn't have an ounce of fear, although he ought to be terrified. He's got two million people in Jerusalem that have nothing to fear, but they are terrified to the point of silence. We stay quiet when we fear others. It requires us to be able to say, I'm not afraid of other people as long as I'm walking with Jesus. It doesn't mean we get on our soapboxes and we make political statements unnecessarily. We don't get our soapbox and make sociological statements or other types of things. It says, if questioned about Jesus, I'm not staying silent. I'm not going to fear my testimony. I'm not going to fear what he did for me. I'm not going to fear who he is. Because like Jesus and Ephraim, if I'm doing God's will, I don't have anything to fear because he's got me totally protected. Now, it doesn't mean evil things, evil people may not do evil things to us. It means God will be with us and will protect us through that. We transition to verse chapter 12, verses 1. As that is going on, simultaneous with that going on, Jesus moves down the road from Ephraim. Uh, down to where this story takes place. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Those are about three miles apart. You can walk there for dinner, which is what they did. Where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner from him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now, this is significant for a couple of reasons. I call this slide Courageous Friends for two big reasons. Number one, they're having dinner with a man that there is essentially a warrant out for his death. And if you're hanging out with Jesus, you're at risk of being gathered up with him and killed with him. Everybody knows that. Remember what Thomas said before they left to come back into Bethany for the event with Lazarus. Let's go with him so we all may die, right? Remember we talked about that two weeks ago, three weeks ago. So they're with Jesus. That's a fair level of, of courageousness. But here's something you may not know. The Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke tell us whose house this is. It's not Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Luke and Mark tell us they're at a guy's house named Simon the leper. He was one of the lepers that Jesus healed that became a believer and said, I want him as close to me as I can get. Here's why that took courage. 
there were a handful of people that could never worship in the temple for as long as they lived. Shepherds were one. Lepers were two. I'll tell you number three in just a minute. If you were a leper, even if healed, you couldn't go to the temple. If you can't go to the temple, you can't sacrifice. If you can't sacrifice, you're not going to heaven. Lepers, like shepherds, were damned to hell in their mind. In the mind of the Jew, they have no hope of going to heaven because they can't go to the temple, they can't sacrifice, they can't get there. It was illegal under Judaism for an obedient Jew to hang out with a shepherd or a leper. You had to ostracize. That's why you had leper colonies. That's why the shepherds lived by themselves with the sheep on the hill. There was no social interaction. So for all the disciples to say, we're going to go hang out with a leper, albeit a healed leper, they were basically saying, we can never go to the temple and sacrifice again as long as we live, which culturally said, we're not going to heaven the way you think you're all going to heaven. It took a lot of courage in a system built on being a good, obedient Jew to engage in economic commerce and social interaction and politics and everything else they did. But we've also got what I mentioned a couple of weeks ago with Chatty Lazarus. He's at the dinner table. He's talking it up. We know from other parts of Scripture, every time we see him from here on out, he is talking. Next time we teach this chapter, you're going to see the lesson on he's talking so much they want to kill him. They want to kill him again. And he's just talking and talking and talking. It's a great little insight on the power of a transformed soul. And it says, Mary took a pound of fragrant oil. Now, what's going to happen is Mary is going to anoint Jesus for death. We've heard this story so many times we fly through it and we go, yep, that's Mary. She's the one that worships. She's the one that anoints his feet. Great story. All four Gospels cover it. I've heard it before. I know it. That's great. Pause for just a second. I said before, I'll say it again. I could make an argument. This woman is the greatest living theologian on the planet Earth at this point in time. Why do I say that? Because the disciples don't see it. Mary, the mother of Jesus, doesn't see it. Nobody who believes in him sees it or believes it. They all think they may die, and that's just the end of the the, the job. But this woman sees not only the death, she sees the resurrection. She knew before anyone else did, he is going to be crucified, and he's going to be resurrected. How did she know this, and Peter and James, and John, and Matthew, and Jude Thaddeus, and James, the son of Alphaeus, missed it all. How did Mary, the mother of Jesus, miss it? How did she possibly know? It's real simple. She was always at his feet. No one else in scripture, not a single person, not the disciples, not his mother, not his followers were ever at his feet feet. It is a picture of literal and and, and uh, practical. She was at his feet to learn. The disciples would hang out. They would hang out in the periphery. Mary would come interact with him. The other disciple followers would come and hang out with him, but they would just come and spend time with him and, and learn and leave or learn and go do some other job, go and get food, go and get some money for this project or that project. 
Mary is always at his feet learning. The picture for how we learn, what God wants us to learn that other people miss, is by staying at his feet. Now, practically, how do we do that today? Number one, prayer. Number two, Bible study. That's why we are supposed to study our Bible every single day of our lives. Don't dust it off and bring it to church like a talisman. It's why we're supposed to spend every single day in prayer so that we stay at his feet connected. When I pray, I literally get the image I had of me as a little kid with my dad sitting on his foot with my arms wrapped around him as he walked around. He would carry me around on his foot. That's my image when I pray. And sometimes I'll say, here I am again, sitting on your foot, holding on to his leg. Teach me. Teach me like Mary. That's why she's the greatest living theologian at this point in time, because a woman in a culture that devalued women, did not educate women, thought of women as property. God makes the greatest theologian on the planet Earth because she had the movement of God in her heart to stay at his feet. It says it's pure and expensive nard. What's nard? It is the most expensive base of perfume that existed. It was imported from India. An Indian export today is just head down to Westheimer. In their day, it was a big, big deal. You didn't just head down to Westheimer to find something Indian. If you wanted nard, it was expensive. It was time consuming. It would come in a thick gelatinous oil. For a woman to make perfume, she would take one drop of this, put it in another little glass vial, and add 100 to 200 parts of water and shake it up. And that was enough perfume to last for months and months and months. You would not use pure nard for anything other than one thing, and that was death. You would use nard. It was so valuable as a lifetime of perfume. They couldn't just run down to the mall and buy perfume. They had to make it. One drop, add 100 to 200 drops of water, shake it up in the glass vial. That'd last you for months and months. When it ran out, add one more drop, add another 100 to 200 drops of water. You got more perfume. It lasts forever. For a woman, it was her dowry. When you got married, you would give that to your husband, and that was an asset worth to them what we would consider tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars based on how much of this you had. She has one pound, which was unheard of. Most people would have a couple of ounces to last them a couple of years. She has a pound of it, which not only is a reflection of wealthy family that she came from, it's a reflection she had one of the most envious dowries in all of Israel. Any man, regardless of what she looked like, would treasure that dowry in a wife. And when she sacrifices all of it, she sacrifices her marital prospects. When she breaks this and pours it over the feet of Jesus, she's saying, I care more about my Savior than I care about the prospect of having a husband, which in that day and age was virtually a death sentence. She couldn't work. She had no way of earning an income. She's dependent upon family to survive. And if Lazarus dies again, which he just did, she is out of luck. So it is a sacrifice that we can barely fathom. It's a pound of this fear and fragrant oil. 
and it is a sacrifice that we can barely comprehend. She says, for my Savior, it's worth it. She says he, she anointed Jesus' feet. Now, we hear this and we think, oh, how quaint that is. What a beautiful picture that is. What you got to understand is that what this meant was she was crossing a line and there's no return. The feet of a first century Jew was the most filthy, most disgusting, grossest thing you could ever imagine. And as a result, it was spiritually, religiously, temple-wise unclean. To go into the temple, you had to have a slave clean your feet who had no hope of going to heaven because they couldn't sacrifice and they weren't Jews. No one could clean your feet. You could clean your own feet. You would be defiled in doing so. You'd have to go through a ritual purification process to get into the temple. But for someone else to touch your feet means they could not be a good Jew and go into the temple. Now, fast forward a couple of lessons. I'm going to teach you Jesus and the disciples' feet. And I'm going to rock your world when I teach you that lesson because there's some really good stuff there. This is a prelude to that because when Jesus touched their feet, he's basically saying, I'm never going to sacrifice in the temple again because I've now disqualified myself. When Mary washed his feet, she says, I will never go to the temple again to sacrifice because they won't let me in. That's the third category. Shepherds uh, could never go in again. Uh, the lepers could never go in again. And the people that washed feet could never go in again. Those are the three classes. Mary says, I'm going to anoint his feet. Last point. <clears throat> she wiped his feet with her hair. Now you think, what's going on there? Today in Orthodox Judaism, if you see a Jewish woman in public, she's got a wig on. Only her husband can see her hair. In the Islamic world today, in the conservative Islam, they wear the burqas. That's why they cover their hair. So in their culture, they've still got a hair thing. In Jesus' day, it was always up. Your hair could not be seen down. They didn't have short hair women back then. They just had very long hair, and it was always up. The only time you could lower your hair was in front of your spouse. If you weren't married, you could lower it in front of your family. So when she lowers her hair... She's saying to Jesus, you are my family. We are as intimate as family can be. I'm lowering my hair, and she wipes his feet. It was putting Jesus ahead of her cultural practices. And then it ends at the end of verses 3 by saying, the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. I want to pause there for just a second to get you to understand what's going on. Why anoint his feet? In the Old Testament, you would use an oil like this to anoint a king, but you anointed a king on his head. The only time you covered a body with oil was death. And the reason you did it was twofold. Number one, because of the stench of decay, they needed a perfume to cover the body so that it wouldn't stink as bad. Cracks in the rocks, the seal of the door, whatever it was on the grave, communal graves, graveyards stunk. The richer you were, the better oil you could use like this Indian nard. And if you were rich, you wouldn't stink as bad for nearly as long. If you were poor, you stunk real fast and real bad. The second idea in Judaism was that by covering the dead body in oil, as soon as it dies before we put in the tomb the day of death, we are preserving the body for the resurrection to come. 
Now, we hear that and we go, that makes no sense. The body's going to decay in a matter of weeks and it's going to be totally gone in a matter of years. That's silly. They had this elementary, unscientific view that to preserve the body as long as we can, we're going to cover it totally in oil. And so when someone would die, you'd cover every inch of their body in oil, wrap them up in cloths to preserve it as long as you could. And the idea was they're coming back. Let's help God by preserving the body. So with that idea, pause for a minute and say, why would she anoint his feet with oil? It's because she knows he's going to walk again. She anointed the feet with oil because she knew these feet aren't done walking on this earth, even though I know the Jews in Jerusalem are going to kill him in a matter of days. The oil on the feet was not only the recognition he's going to die, which even Thomas had that right, and he's a goofball. She said, he's coming back, and I'm going to anoint his feet. I'm going to give his feet a double anointing because she knew He's going to get his whole body covered in oil as soon as he is done dying. She didn't know how he's going to die. She didn't know if he's going to be stoned or crucified. She didn't know that. But she knows if he dies, his whole body is going to be anointed. She double anoints his feet, knowing those feet are going to walk on this earth again. That's why I say she's the greatest living theologian at this point in time. Verses 4 through 5, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii? That's a year's wages for a good income earner and given to the poor. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, he was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Remember, John is writing with multiple decades of hindsight on what Judas did. At this point, we could stop and do a whole lesson on Judas and why didn't Jesus call him out and why did Jesus allow this? Hold on, I'm going to do a whole lesson on Judas in a couple of weeks. And when Jesus, Judas betrays him, we're going to do a whole lesson on all of your questions about Judas because there's a whole bunch of them. Hold that thought for now. The point for now is Judas got rebuked right here and Judas turns. Mark and Luke say this point, this story is when Judas plans to turn him over for betrayal. He was rebuked and he rebelled. My life lesson, when God rebukes or disciplines us, our sin nature becomes rebellious. How does God rebuke us? He closes doors that we're trying to walk through. He doesn't answer selfish prayers. He throws up roadblocks to force us to turn we read scripture and it says, stop doing that. That's a sin. We attend church and we hear a message on, don't do that. That's a sin. And our sin nature says, no one is going to tell me what to do. I know what's right and I know what's wrong and I know how I can get through life and I don't know how I can do a scripture. When God rebukes or disciplines us, our sin nature becomes rebellious. Some of the saddest people I know are rebellious Christians. It is tragic, and I know a whole bunch of them. They are believers. If they die, I believe they're going to be in heaven, but they live their life with their hands on the reins, doing whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. It doesn't matter what Scripture says, and they're not even going to read it if you ask them to. 
They're rebellious Christians, and I believe it is the saddest thing on the planet because it's our sin nature doing what our sin nature does best, and that's rebel. Last verses, Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not have me. For anyone that would look at this and say, oh, Mary was anointing him as the king. No, that's his head. And Jesus says, this is not for my kingship. This is for my burial. Cross-reference what Matthew and Luke tell us Jesus said in response. John doesn't tell us the next sentence. Matthew captures it for us the best. Matthew 26, 12, and 13. By pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she has prepared me for burial. I assure you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. Pause for a minute before I conclude and ask yourself why Jesus said this story is so significant. I'm going to preserve it for all time. And just to make sure you don't miss it, I'm going to put it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and preserve what happened. Pause for a minute and say, why is breaking the oil on her foot that significant? And the answer is because it's the greatest picture of salvation that exists in the entire Bible. Why do I say that? It gives us the answer for how you are saved before Christ and how you're saved after Christ. From this story, there is no doubt she's a believer. There's no doubt she's going to heaven. If she dies like Lazarus at this moment, you have no doubt she's going to heaven. You stop for a minute and you say, wait a minute, Christ hasn't died yet. How's that possible? It's possible because she believes in the resurrected Messiah. That's how from Adam and Eve all the way up through Jesus, any of them got into heaven. They believe in the coming resurrected Messiah. For all of us, we believe in the resurrected Messiah who has already come. This woman, before the crucifixion, believed in the death and resurrection of her Savior, and it's that belief that guarantees that she's in heaven. It's the ultimate picture of Old Testament salvation and New Testament salvation, faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Holy Spirit, writing all of those, don't want any of us to miss it. Our insight. The sister of Lazarus did not know how or when, but she knew the Lord would be resurrected, and that truth set her free. Never worship again in the temple? No worries. Never sacrifice again? No worries. Not get married? No worries. Not have a dowry? No worries. Going to be poor and relying upon my sister, Martha? No worries. The truth set her free. Let me give you two quick application. We're done. Some people don't want to recognize truth and prefer to live believing a lie because it conforms to their moral, political, or social preferences. We can apply this a lot of different ways. Relationships you shouldn't be in. Jobs you shouldn't be in. Things you shouldn't be doing. Things that you cling to and even tell others about that are just false. They're just lies. Things that you want to do that you think are good for you, but they're lies. We cling to them because of our sin nature. So the corollary to that point is this one. Seek the truths you most fear to find as they hold the greatest promise of freedom and the greatest threat of destruction. If this was a one-on-one -on -one counseling session, we had hours and hours to work, I could eventually get you to tell me 
what you were most ashamed of, what sin you struggled with the most, what you were most embarrassed about in your past and you were fearful about in your future, what your greatest anxiety and uncertainty is, whatever that is for each of you. We're not going to publicly discuss it, obviously, but we could if we had to. My challenge is seek the truth and what you fear the most. Because when you rush towards that sin rather than try to avoid it, when you rush towards that past that you want to forget, when you rush toward those decisions you wished you hadn't made and you wonder, why did I make these decisions? Rush towards that truth. And I'm not saying this is a prospect for self-evaluation. What I'm talking about is usually stuff that requires somebody else to help you, somebody else to dig it out of you, somebody else to work with you. That may be a counselor. That may be a pastor. That may be a dear friend you're not afraid to share with. When you run towards those truths and you identify it, you lay it at the foot of Jesus, and then you hang on to his leg like sitting on daddy's foot when he walks around and say, now teach me what to do. Just like with Mary, there is greater freedom in that than anything else you and I could possibly do. Hang in there. We'll study more. If you want to know how to do this practically, we're going to get to it in two weeks. Our next lesson, the triumphal entry. You thought Palm Sunday was three weeks ago? Uh -uh. We're doing Palm Sunday the next time we study this. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study your word. We thank you for the promise and the truth here. And we just pray, God, that you would use this as a reminder to, like Mary, constantly be at your feet in prayer, in personal time in our Bible, in personal time with other believers out of which we can draw truths for how to deal with the practical steps of life. And God, thank you so much for drawing us here as a class to learn, to fellowship, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to support for each other. Thank you for Butch and Karen, our leadership, and all that they do to make this class happen every Sunday, to make the class happen during the week. We thank you for the miracle of this class and its leaders, not by our will, not by our goodness, not by our intelligence, but simply because of the love of Jesus Christ in our hearts. And we thank you for the sacrifice. We thank you for the love. We thank you for that which we don't deserve, and we ask all of these things to your glory, your honor, through your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a good week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.